Hi everyone and welcome to this Alan Novery Institutional Investor Forum podcast, the purpose of which is to explore the important topic of diversity and inclusion in the asset management industry and the institutional investor market in particular. I'm Paul Sampson, a partner in our funds and asset management practice in London and this podcast forms part of our How I Made It series, one of a range of interviews with high-flying women in the industry who have reached senior roles within their organisation and from whom all of us, women and men alike, can learn from and look up to. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Tamara Franks, who is Head of Group General Council Operations at the University's Superannuation Scheme, also known as USS. USS is the UK's largest pension scheme by assets, with over £82 billion under management, and is dedicated to providing retirement benefits to over 470,000 members across more than 330 institutions in the higher education sector. Tamara is based in London, where she has worked in the city as an investment management lawyer before joining USS in 2014. Prior to that, Tamara spent almost a decade in private practice at BLP, now BCLP, within the investment management team, and a short stint at Decker. I've known Tamara for a number of years, and I've always found her to be a great person to talk to about a whole host of topics, particularly during lockdown when she introduced me to the idea of a walk and talk meeting, which really helped me get away from the screen and get some much needed fresh air. I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from this podcast. Welcome, Tamara. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, That was a lovely introduction. I'm very excited to join you today. Great. Well, my first question, which I probably should have asked you sooner uh, and should know the answer to, but what on earth is Group General Counsel Operations? (laughs) So you're not the first person to ask that question, strangely. So the role really uh, came out of my uh, work in legal operations, but it's an expanded form of that to serve not only the, the legal team, but also um, the governance and compliance teams, which sit within uh, the group general counsel function at USS. But in slightly more granular terms, I spend an awful lot of my time working on risk, thinking about our GGC risk management framework, our appetite for um, for risk, and effectively the board provides those appetites for risk, but how we effectively implement that in our uh, more day-to-day processes. I deal with financial management, policies, technological uh, solutions for a lot of the work that we do across those three teams. And it's uh, it's a very varied role, never never a dull day. It sounds pretty full on. Um, I think uh, if, if we could, and in the words of Chris Martin, can you take me back to the start? So when did you first consider a career in law and, and what has your experience been of private practice? <laughs> An interesting question. I would love to come up with a really academic response here. But when I was doing my A-levels and thinking about UCAS and all those that whole delightful process, I was considering a number of different areas, quite different things. I'd always wanted to become a doctor, but I'd been thwarted by the timetable team at my school, so that wasn't going to happen. Um, I thought about psychology. I thought about law. And fundamentally, everyone I spoke to about um, doing a legal uh, law degree basically said to me that even if you don't want to become a lawyer afterwards, it will open doors. So it was a a path that seemed to provide multiple options, which was appealing to me at the time. And I was also always quite a good linguist. So I added a a German component to my degree and went from there. But I also quite liked watching Perry Mason as a child, which I would love to say didn't influence the decision, but in fact, actually really did. (laughs) Yeah, not quite. I often get asked how similar is my job to uh, suits and I always say uh, nothing like it whatsoever and personally would 
shy away from any program that glamorizes the legal profession but there you go and and so okay so you, you've you've done your law and, and and german degree and then you go straight to so presumably law school uh, and then turn up at blp as a, as a trainee so how how was your how was your experience of, of, of sort of private practice and being in what you know at that time was was i suppose a, a very male dominated environment so my experience in private practice was generally positive. I joined the team that I'd uh, done a first seat of my training contract in. It was a very vibrant team growing in an area of, of law that allowed quite a lot of project management liaison with different teams. So a bit of a social butterfly aspect uh, within the firm. Got to meet lots of different people. It was a team that managed at that stage not only fund investments, but also uh, joint ventures, club deals and and, um, more complex corporate transactions where there were a number of different entities across different jurisdictions often. So it was was quite an exciting, varied role to be doing. I think that project management aspect in a way is one of the skills, I suppose, that I've pulled the whole way through my career and I certainly enjoyed doing that kind of thing and was given an opportunity to do a secondment when I was about two and a half years qualified at Schroeder's Investment Management, uh, which at the time seemed a bit random, actually, because we didn't do a huge amount of work for them. And the kind of work that I did on that secondment was quite different to what the team did internally. But I learned quite a lot. And I actually came back with an understanding of what investment management was, which slightly bizarrely, even despite the team name, investment management, I hadn't really understood the idea of a of an institution managing other people's money and the thought process that came with that and the different array of different investments and quite frankly what an in-house environment was like and even after that's a comment I started thinking actually I quite like the idea of you know going in-house but went back to the mothership um, carried on progressing doing varying interesting work for a number of quite big clients like Aviva Tesco and the like and when I was about struggling to the mass here. I'm thinking about six years qualified, uh, had my daughter, went back to work afterwards. And I have to say, throughout the period, I suppose I, I was still thinking I want to go in-house. Uh, the timing wasn't right, you know, with the downturn, uh, 2008-ish. Um, you know, the jobs, there were sometimes jobs and they evaporated. It was quite frustrating. Um, so that passage just didn't seem open. I learned a lot, did some really interesting work, and I wasn't frustrated in my day-to-day, so I was actually fine still learning. But, yeah, I was keeping an eye open, I suppose. Um, in terms of the, the male-dominated environment, I suppose I got used to that fairly quickly. It wasn't something that was always in my thought. There were certainly some some pinch points where perhaps, you know, it, it was more obvious. But, you know, a lot of meetings did start with the latest football results, and obviously the partners knew which teams their clients supported and you know you just got used to the dynamic and in itself it, it you know it, it wasn't problematic perhaps a little bit exclusive and perhaps not what you'd see today but yeah not not something that was an issue to me on an ongoing basis thanks Tamara I mean I, I guess sort of going back to this comment I know from my own experience I, I mean I know the Schroders team but equally from my own experience of being on secondment what I realized is just quite how different the job is to being in private practice it's chalk and cheese what sort of attracted you to making that jump I know lots of our listeners will have either made that jump or they'll, they'll be thinking about it as something they might do in the future and fortunately as as sort of funds lawyers we we, we all have those opportunities what sort of drew you to the in-house environment um, I think it was the variety, both in terms of the type of work that came up, 
but also the different people. I think, in contrast, private practice felt like the people themselves were less diverse. It seemed to attract certain personality types, whereas I think in an in-house environment with the different roles that you come across, not necessarily legal, obviously, you, you just meet and interact with many different kinds of people with different skills and perhaps that opens up in you a, a different skill set perhaps than is you know at least at that point necessarily encouraged in private practice i think i liked the idea of being closer to the business and i think that's certainly something i think a lot of people who go in house feel but don't necessarily really understand how that happens but certainly at uss i'd say is it's quite a, an amazing environment in terms of uh, the opportunities it provides to have an insight into you know, investment reasoning right from the point, I suppose. Well, sometimes it really is that we've got thought, are there any blocks to this? So really, really early on. But even on deals where it, it arises later, you're basically dealing with a scenario of, you know, we think we've got this as far as considering commercial red flags. So we're now a goer all the way through structuring concerns, commercial concerns. And whilst actually the team has evolved to articulate in far greater clarity effectively what the technical role of an in-house legal team is on a deal, it still as an environment provides the opportunity to overstep those lines a little bit and actually contribute to shaping a deal where that, that line between legal and commercial decision-making is a little bit more fuzzy. And that's certainly something that I've always thrived on you know, basically design, shaping, creating opportunities. Okay. And then, and then I suppose once, so you, you make the move to, to USS and then talk us through your career path there, because I think one thing that people worry about when they move in house is, is that their path is becomes more stagnated. Uh, in private practice, there's, there's very distinct titles and roles um, and, and, and a ladder, <laughs> but in house, it can be a bit gray you know a bit of a gray zone your your career sort of gone strength to strength at, at uss talk talk us through uh, that progression since, since you know over the last sort of eight years or so sure um so i joined uss actually as a contractor which was a, a huge risk but i'd actually ended up leaving blp not realizing i was actually pregnant with my second child so by the time i'd had him and uh, had some time <laughs> off with him. Essentially, I was in a position where I suppose I, I was more willing to take that risk. But anyway, it's a risk I never look back on. Um, so I did a contract there. It kept on getting extended. And then I got selected through an external process for a permanent role. And yes, did that for a while. I think I, I fitted pretty well in terms of understanding the role internally, but also always having that thought around the continuous improvement of our processes and picking up on, uh, there were some regulatory points where, again, I, I have a naturally questioning mind, which can really irritate people sometimes, but it had a place and I think I enhanced things. And so I progressed from that to becoming a, a senior legal counsel. And then I, I um, had a slightly less clear role, which is investment legal strategic liaison manager, which... Um, then became investment legal strategy manager, which as I gradually started doing more and more of the legal ops side, that, that was effectively what the title was getting at, though it wasn't potentially necessarily that clear. And so I was, well, I basically led our first RFP to select a panel uh, of law firms, um, which brought with it lots of savings, lots of value add, really shaped the way that our advice was sought uh, and provided. So that was quite instrumental. Uh, and a lot of the other legal operation strands 
they basically evolved out of that or more technological solutions. And then basically an opportunity arose to take that role broader uh, across the other GDC teams as well, which, you know, it might seem surprising. And again, the, the title is perhaps a bit opaque, but actually, you know, governance teams and compliance teams, whilst they're potentially less reactive than an in-house legal team is, so that the nature of how the work comes in is quite different. There are a lot of common strands in terms of how we operate. And certainly, I think one of the things we've improved is how closely those teams work together to support the business, which in itself is provides efficiency and basically improves the service that the business gets. Great. Just want to go back slightly to you know the point you were making earlier around you know, I suppose the lack of diversity historically in in the profession, particularly in in private practice. I think my perception is things are improving slowly, probably not quick enough. Uh, at least at ANO, we are doing a hell of a lot to improve diversity on all and inclusion um, on a on a, a wide variety of of, of different metrics. Um, I suppose from a client perspective is that something you take into account when instructing firms or at least having that having a firm on a, on a panel is is that something I know this is an area you care about personally um, and I also know the organization USS cares about this but you know actually filtering that down to decision making is quite difficult I, I think for clients um, what would your what would your take be on that so I, th- I think we we've done great things in terms of DNI in the last couple of years at USS, you know, the initiative's really taken off. It's taken a lot of views from across the business. Um, so there's been lots of opportunity to, to, you know, provide input to that. I think though we'd all acknowledge we've got some way to go in all the different uh, strands of DNI that we support, and we've, you know, identified a variety of characteristics that um, we focus uh, our work on, and different people who are involved in supporting different DNI characteristics. I think we could do more to build it into our procurement processes. And I know that that is a work in progress. So for our panel RFPs, for example, we asked the questions. I think the fact that we got responses that were very different in terms of level of sophistication shows the problem, because obviously if firms aren't gathering data, they can't report on you know, their real position. And you know, so actually providing or making informed decisions off the back of that data would be slightly flawed in its own right. But but to be honest, even if we were getting consistent data back in, I think we weren't, certainly when we did the last RFP in 2020, I think we weren't quite ready to really grade people on that. So it was looked at, it was considered, but it wasn't a, they've only got 30% female partners or whatever, we, they were going to count them type decision. It, it, it wasn't that weighted in the uh, the overall decision making uh, and to be honest i think i mean certainly so i'm very involved in the dni initiative at, at uss and obviously the gender one always comes first in a way it's the easiest fix it's the most visible but my own passion actually lies with supporting our ability strand in specifically neurodiversity um, it's a matter very close to my heart due to um, family connections and i mean I've had numerous conversations with numerous different panel firms, non-panel firms around this, and it's a characteristic that lags in, I think, all different environments in terms of the development of what it means to that environment and what can be done to support it and effectively what's, what the statistics ought to say. Like, If you did actually gather the data, 
what's an okay position in terms of supporting neurodiversity. And obviously, neurodiversity isn't one set of characteristics. You're not talking about everyone being dyslexic or everyone having ADHD. There's a whole range. But certainly getting into a position where law firms and, in fact, other suppliers across the organisation have to demonstrate that they're actually doing what they ought to do um, in, in respect of all forms of um, ability, disability, is, uh, is something that I would love to work towards. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important. And and to be honest, the the gender issue is, isn't really even a matter of diversity, is it? With half the planet being being female, so I think we've got a long way to go on all sorts of strands of of DNI. Um, but it's great to hear, you know, that USS is 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 you know playing its role, and and you're a key part of that. I, I suppose the one of the things I struggle with, and I think probably other you know, senior men in the industry struggle with is, is actually quite how to go about supporting talented, if we focus on women for now, um, talented women who are coming through and show, you know, great potential. It's a difficult area. And you know, as, a, as a father to a, a daughter, I'd hate to imagine a world where she will grow up and not be able to have the same opportunities as, as her brother. Have there been any men in your and you don't have to name or, or shame, uh, shame. But have there been any men in your career who you you know have really supported you? And, and, and if so, you know what did they do, and and what did that support mean to you? Because I think you know I'd find that really beneficial, and I'm sure other people listening would as well in terms of things that I could do better. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question, um, and I have to say I couldn't certainly I couldn't name one individual that you know who's been with me throughout my career to date who's who's made a real impact I am not someone who's naturally inclined to either looking for or adopting a role model I think I you know that's not to say I haven't benefited benefited from different things from different people very much have but I think I I'm not like it's an odd way of looking at it but I'm not into celebrity either I don't I don't idolize people in that way so I, I I look more you know in a more granular way at different people, but I worked uh, for a long time with someone at um, BLP from whom I technically learned a lot. I also learned a fair amount about how not to manage people. I certainly have some you know very candid conversations with senior men at USS, uh, which I benefit from. I do like the candid feedback at times and you know candid discussions. I think. Given where I am now, I'd say my current boss, has, Jeremy Hill, has made a, a big impact, both in terms, I suppose, of giving me the chance to fill the role I'm in now, which is fairly new and in some ways quite innovative, but also not only giving me the role, but setting me free within it to basically really consider what can be done with it. And I think that's a fairly unique opportunity to have. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. I mean, along the way, there were other people. I mean, looking back, there was a another partner at, at BLP who I'd have fairly regular catch-ups with, but you know, over the years we kind of lost touch. But I am someone who, you know, I've got a fairly good network from different places I've worked. Now I obviously spend a lot of time so I manage the panel at USS, you know, liaising with different firms. And you know, I certainly very much prize the conversations I have with with different partners. Because obviously whilst I'm fulfilling the role for USS, the, the conversations do become slightly more personal on both sides around what people's purpose and values and general ambition is, which is it's an interesting way of learning from a different, you know, from an array of different people. Um, which I yeah so I I think what I'm saying is I effectively prefer 
learning and picking up things from a variety of different people rather than really focusing on a particular individual. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I think whoever we are working with or for any one time, they will have a range of sort of strengths and weaknesses. And it's about trying to pick the strengths and replicate those and, and maybe, but also learning how not to do things. Of course, we'll all, we'll own, we'll all have our own strengths and weaknesses and, and there's not much you can do about that, but you can certainly pick up things from people along the way. I quite like that as a, you know, as a really useful piece of advice. I, th- I think one, one of the things we focus on ano is rather than role modeling which is important but not the be all and end all and i think a lot of women do come across that issue of you know if i can't see it i can't be it so i do i do think that the role modeling does have a a, a place particularly in private practice but the other thing of course is sponsorship which is so much more than role modeling for me it's about championing someone it's about providing them with opportunities. It's about, you know, as you said earlier, it's about giving them the space to make a role their own and, you know, making sure that they have every opportunity to make a success of their career. Would you agree with that? Have you had any good sponsors? Do you sponsor people? Did you see a difference between that and role modelling? So, yes, I, I certainly do see a difference between sponsorship and role modelling. I Again, I I think I haven't benefited that much from sponsorship to date, or at least not until more recently. And I think that partially is due to the passage of time. I think things have changed a lot. Because like what you were saying a minute ago about everyone having strengths and weaknesses. When I was in private practice, certainly in the earlier years, I think there was a mentality of actually, is it one size fits all? You know, we're looking for lawyers with this set of characteristics. And, you know, there were a certain number of things that just weren't prized. So actually, my more strategically, critically minded thought around how the business should be undertaken, whilst maybe in some firms that would have been prized, it certainly wasn't in my team at BLP, which was a shame and very much the opposite. Now at USS, I really see how that is prized and actually stands me in good stead. So I think sponsorship wise, I was perhaps a bit naive about the role that that could play in your career. I, you know, I certainly wasn't someone who was in my you know, younger years who was astute enough to kind of recognise the need perhaps to cultivate those relationships at a senior level. I think I just got on with a day job, worked really hard and took the satisfaction I wanted to from you know, the day job. And actually, I think some people were more astute about that and playing the game and really thinking, oh, I'm going to do a lot to work for that particular individual because he's influential. Whereas I just took the work I was given and ran with it, which, you know, in some ways is great. And I don't, I don't like the idea in some ways that people pick and choose and play those semi-political games, yet equally slightly less naive now, you know, 20 odd years later. I think you do need to recognise the benefits that you can get and not in, in law, but certainly within USS. I think there are some very obvious examples of those who've benefited from sponsorship and guidance and I suppose sponsorship rather than role modelling, but mentoring, I think those two I would see as slightly more aligned or more related. And I would say I've probably benefited from a range of relationships. I certainly have a range of relationships now that I've picked up from throughout my career where I can you know, go and seek advice and I'd really respect the, you know, both the people know me and that would provide me realistic, helpful advice kind of with knowledge of the environment that I'm operating in. Um, but sponsorship, I'm not entirely sure that I would really pin on someone in the sense of it's not one person. I've got people who support me, but I I, I see a quite a continuous trend. So certainly in terms of advice to 
someone coming through. I would say if someone is willing to sponsor you and they understand you and you respect them, well, in fact, mutual respect, I think, is really important. I would absolutely suggest, you know, take up any opportunity that's offered to you. I think it could be really handy. I think that's right. And and I personally always say to junior people that, if you haven't sought out a sponsor then you're you are missing a trick because i think in particularly in large organizations you know everyone does need that senior person who is sort of uh you know banging the drum and and fighting their corner i personally think it's a very important thing i suppose you are a you know you're working mum i don't really like that 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 term Uh, but you you know you've had two children i know you're very hands-on with them from our previous conversations how do you balance that because I think that is an area where people struggle and I say I say people deliberately because there's two sides of the debate both of which are somewhat irritating one is you know the idea can women have it all which is irritating in itself because it you know it, it implies that men have it all when actually a lot of senior men would actually like to probably don't get that balance right and and also you know it there's an also an implication there that sort of women have to choose one or the other and, and you're an example of someone who is doing both and, and I'm sure that's stressful at times but you you are doing it and, and and I think people would benefit from hearing how you get that how you get strike that balance between career and family Oh, a million dollar question, I think. I think balance is still perhaps a, uh, an aspirational thing for me. <laughs> but um, so interestingly, actually, um, a former headmistress of my uh, school who who hadn't had a family once said, actually, women can't have it all. And that really grated with me. Um, so I think I think practically, of course, we can have it all. Um, you know, it, it is physically possible. The question in my mind remains, can you do everything the way you want to do it when you have both a demanding career and a family who you know or children or well, it's, it's both children and a family life that, that you perhaps had a picture in your head of what it was going to be of, of of how you parent you know what kind of spouse you are what kind of home you keep uh, what kind of social life you have and, and it's it's that question that I don't think I have an answer to in the sense of you know am I always the parent I want to be no do I have high standards? And am I beginning to recognise more that, you know, I do have high standards and perhaps sometimes I just need to cut myself a bit of slack at, you know, wielding our best and it's not going to be perfect. And actually bringing up children, expecting that, you know, there's going to be a homemade sugar-free cake on the table every afternoon is perhaps not how you want your kids to be anyway. And I think, you know, in particular, if you have a daughter, it's actually really important to show that, you know, there's a reason that they're going through school life and whatever, you know, the, the options out there for the future. And those options are for them to pick, not be, you know, imposed on them in some way because someone has a kind of societal idea that, that that's not the right job. I mean, even my mother has once said to me that I have a man's job, which <laughs> I, I think bizarrely was meant to be a compliment. But yeah, it's I, a generational. I think it's generational. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I just want the, the the options to be there. But but I would certainly say, you know, you've got to go. This counts for everything, not just just work and and home life. But you've got to go through life and you know figure out what works for you, rather than forming a a preconceived idea of of what's right. And um, yeah, I mean, careers also like even in, even in the narrower sense of jobs, you know, it's not always completely predictable what the next step will be. I mean, obviously in private practice, there is a far more delineated process, but even there, it's not necessarily obvious. Um, you know, a lot of firms have brought in 
um, a kind of senior pre-partner role that, you know, is meant to be more focused on a particular strand of business or, or, you know, a set of criteria. But the fact you take that, inverted commas, easier option for a period of time doesn't mean that you can't bounce back and do something else. And in fact, you know, I think that the skills you learn in life really do complement effectively what you do in the work environment later anyway. So actually, one of the, the, the phrases that always springs to mind, my current boss, he once said to me when I just after I joined USS, you know, careers aren't straight lines, they're zigzags. And I think that always really stuck in my head. Because, you know, my career had zigzagged a little bit more than I perhaps would have anticipated. I think when I was junior and BLP, people thought I was used to say to me, I was become the next managing partner. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, certainly didn't do that. So I, um, yeah, I, th- I think you've got to be flexible and adaptable. And that's perhaps not always a, a mindset that you think of with lawyers. But I would certainly encourage people to keep an open mind and not plan too far ahead and just see what comes. I think that's really good advice. As you were talking, I was thinking about it, in my house the the sort of lack of balance and <laughs> that there is, but we do our best. And 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 you know, I remember my daughter when she was she was very young, about three maybe. Uh, she I saw her sort of marching across the kitchen floor, carrying my wife's handbag and a, and, a, and a mobile phone. And I sort of asked her what she was doing. And she said, "Daddy, I've got an important meeting to go to, and I'm on a call." And I just <laughs> I just looked at her and thought, isn't that incredible? Because actually that's what she sees because my wife works. And that's completely normal to her. And so I'm hoping as she grows up, that will just, it will be normal for her to do, you know, do a job where she needs to be on calls and go to meetings. So I actually was sort of really pleased with that. But I suppose maybe one final question, and it's probably a difficult one, but what advice would you give to the younger Tamara? So if you could sort of go back to the beginning you've talked about how the, your career was you know more of a zigzag than you anticipated and i think that's really good advice for people to realize that it's not you know it's not just a sort of stairway to heaven you're you're going to have bumps in the road you're going to have things happen in your life which you didn't predict and and it's all about how you either come back from those challenges or simply just think you know events in your life which are good things but take your career on a in a different in a different route was there anything you would sort of wish you'd known back at the start that you know now that perhaps our listeners can use in their own career journeys? Yeah. um, So I think there's a number of different things, actually. I think probably the most crucial thing that I've learned along the way, and perhaps even been a little bit slow on the uptake on, is that it's not necessarily what you do, it's how you do it. And I think certainly at USS, we have a behavioural competencies framework that effectively sets out an expectation on how you perform, not just what you do. I don't know if if law firms necessarily have that, but I think it's really crucial to understand that because, I mean, everyone does psychometric testing somewhere along the the way of their career. And often the responses aren't quite, you know, consistent, depending on which, you know, one you do. But I think they often have common themes and people don't necessarily learn from them and also with feedback perhaps not being given in as structured a way as it could be, I think, again, there could be a recurring theme. People see, well, you know, I've had my appraisal and I've, the same things come up again. I thought I'd worked on this. I thought I'd addressed it. And I've, I've worked really hard. I've got lots of hours on the clock. You know, why, why am I not doing better? And I think there needs to be more of a focus on that how. So I'd certainly emphasise that. And if I look back personally, therefore, again, appreciating perhaps I should have picked up on this faster myself. I think a lot of what I should have 
known earlier or wish I'd known earlier were along the lines of that how. So playing the game a little bit more perhaps on you know what work I did in my junior years to, to pick up a sponsor, recognising the importance of that sponsor perhaps to have someone consistently throughout my career rather than just benefiting from piecemeal way, which, you know, to be honest, has still worked to an extent. So it's not like it's been a complete failure, but <laughs> just looking back, I think to me, it's also been very important to always have direction. And again, you know, not to the extent that you, you feel like you failed if you, you know, you, you know, diverge from that course that you'd anticipated. But nonetheless, I think people who perform better do so because they have a, they have a feeling of where they want to get to. And I think perhaps lastly, I would also say, and I, I think this is an area that I have actually really succeeded on, it's, it's being true to yourself, having a set of personal values and perhaps, you know, developing it a bit more even almost a personal brand that you recognise in yourself so that you kind of keep in touch with that and make sure that you haven't inadvertently done something that actually doesn't sit quite right with you. Um, but I think that's that's really quite an important one because I think as the world changes in terms of DNI, both in-house and in private practice, there is increasing capacity to be your own self, to be recognised for that, to be recognised for how you perform on your values. And I think roles are far more satisfying if you're performing in line with your own values rather than you know an organisational value that doesn't necessarily represent you. Not to say that you shouldn't also consider your organisation's values, but I think being true to yourself is really important in terms of that job satisfaction and developing in the way to suit your your strengths and really recognising your strengths as strengths. That's a fantastic uh, advice and a probably appropriate point to end at. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been fascinating talking to you. And thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.